listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You are listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode number 289. You're 289. not Paige. I'm not Paige. That's correct. I'm not. I snuck in. The door was open and I'm just here. Uh, you didn't sneak in. You're one of the new OGG and hosts for one of our new shows. You're part of the family. Introduce yourself, Jordan. Yeah, so Jordan Driscoll, I am in the process of recording my first episodes for OGGN. It's going to be the Oil and Gas Geopolitics podcast, where we are going to talk at length about whatever geopolitical kerfuffle is happening in the world that strikes my fancy at that given moment. And um, I can guarantee that I'll try and keep it irreverent, humorous, and you should probably have a Wikipedia page opened on your uh, device that way, because I can guarantee I'm going to make the occasional uh, pop or historical reference that you'll have a hard time finding. He does it in normal conversations, folks. I guarantee you on his show, you're going to see that. The other thing, if you have kiddos, this is going to be one of our few explicit shows, so just be forewarned. There will be heavy language that's too heavy for soft ears. All right, so thank you for stepping in for Paige and co-hosting the show. You want to get to the reviews? Yeah, so we got a review here. Now, it's real easy to leave a review. You want to go to uh, https colon backslash backslash lovethepodcast.com slash OGTW. So, yeah, by all means, give us reviews. We love that. We got a review here. It says, very informative. I love the podcast. You both do a great job explaining such a complex industry in a way that people outside the industry can understand. Keep up the good work. And that is Josh in Slow from the United States. And we got that on uh, December 8th, 2022. Yeah, Josh, I very much appreciate your five-star review. If you want to leave us a review, you could try to remember the URL that Jordan ladled off, or you just go to the show notes and click on it, leave us a review. And we appreciate all our reviews. Paige tends to appreciate the ones that give us grief. I tend to appreciate the ones that give us five stars, but we'll take anything in between. Uh, you want to jump in the news stories? Yeah. So what we got here, first one teed up is going to be how many episodes are in the rig? And what about stars of this Amazon Prime show? Jordan, can you believe that Amazon Prime put together a series take place on an oil rig in the North Sea? I think it's a brilliant idea in the sense that, like, it's bottled. You know exactly what your set's going to be, and there's, like, not a whole lot of production. I mean, yeah, filming on a rig, if you're doing that's going to be a whole thing. But you got a really limited stage, right? You know exactly where that's going to be. I'm very curious how long until we get the obligatory, this is such a terrible thing, and if we hadn't been out here on the sea drilling a hole in the earth, then this terrible fog bank wouldn't have attacked us or whatever the premise of the show is. So... I can feel it in my bones coming. Yeah, this is actually a supernatural thriller. And you talk about Finland on a rig. One of the things they did I thought was really cool is this was entirely shot on land in Scotland, even though it's supposed to take place offshore, okay. which is logistically easier to do it on land. But Jordan, they made the weight of the doors. Actually, they made the doors in the set the exact same doors on the rig, same waterproof doors. So they're the same weight. So that when the actors and actresses are moving around, they're having to manhandle the doors just like a roughneck would offshore, which adds a lot of realism to the series. Like I said, I think from a setting perspective, it's a really neat idea. And I mean, it could be really educational and interesting. I hope they don't go too far in the 
you know, let's have the obligatory political stuff in there, says the guy who's going to do a political podcast. <laughs> but let's keep it entertaining. Hopefully it'll be fun. And I'm actually interested in this. And it's very rare that I watch these kind of shows that don't involve something blowing up in outer space. So this has caught my fancy. Well, so there's six episodes that were released, uh, I think, the first week of January of this year. I've only watched the first one. And there's no anti-oil political slant in it at all so far, which is awesome. I just think it's cool to somebody set a mystery thriller on an oil rig. Got a lot of stars that people know the name of. You're a fan of Game of Thrones. I think one or two of their people are in this. Great directing. So far, that first episode was good. It grabbed my attention, but I'm just tickled to death that somebody decided to shoot a series on an oil rig. And actually the whole series, I don't want to give it away, but the whole series is about the rig workers having to deal with something that may have a supernatural component, but they don't quite know what's going on yet. So they have to stick together and work through this. So, so far it's really good, but I just love the fact that somebody did a series on a rig. <laughs> yeah. I actually want to check that out. I'm probably going to put that on my list to watch. Yeah, that'll be good. We like that. So yeah. it's folks, there'll be a link in the show notes for this. So if you want to go check it out, just uh, go to the show notes, click on the link and you can check out the episode. What's next? So next, we got Gazprom squeezes European gas supply through the remaining routes. Yeah, so we all know what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline and the sabotage that went out there. We're still waiting to find out if we ever find out what actually happened. I have my viewpoints on it. But this article is actually really good, showing how the Russian gas that's getting to Europe has been constrained even more than the Nord Stream pipeline. And there's a couple of things going on here. Because of some of the sanctions, Gazprom has reduced its output through other pipelines, especially especially through the former Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic. And then Russia is still using gas as a weapon and threatening. Wait, wait, wait. You're kidding me. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding you. I'm glad I was sitting down for that revelation that the guys that started the most recent land war in Europe would use energy as a weapon on their opponents. What are the odds? Well, actually, I don't want to get too far off the subject, but you know, we've done it before too. The reason the Soviet Union is not around anymore is that Reagan figured out that they were funding their war machine with the profits of hydrocarbons. And he basically, in combination with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, tanked the industry, which bankrupted the Soviet Union. So they've done it. We've done it. I like our approach better, but of course I do because I'm an American. And <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, that was right smack in the middle of freaking Cold War in the Marine Corps. It was not a fun time. I'm just glad all that stuff is over. The other thing that's going on is the movement of gas through Turkey has been curtailed. We talked about one of the past shows about the insurance requirements for the super tankers. One thing they're not talking about here is Russia's frantically trying to put together a ghost fleet of tankers to get around the sanctions. And the problem with that is that there's not any available tankers on the market to buy. So what they're buying are old tankers that need to be retrofitted, that are going to be leak-prone, dangerous, not good for the environment. And then, of course, since they're a ghost fleet, they're not going to be reporting on their movement or anything else. So that's going to be a mess down the road that we're going to have to figure out. But this lack of gas in Europe is actually really getting really hit hard because the last say two months, it's been relatively warm in Europe. So they haven't had the need for the gas that they normally have, but now it's getting freaking cold. And so this is all going to come to a head. So we'll keep an eye on this. Absolutely. So next up, speaking of Europe, we got the UK oil and gas market is extremely fragmented. Yeah, I found this interesting. So if you look at the United Kingdom's oil and gas market, the top five operators account for 35% of the total output. 
compared to Norway, where the top five operators account for 65%. And now if you look here in the US is even more fragmented, but that's our history with our small independent operators. Yeah, absolutely. But because of what's going on in the UK, you know, this article is about how the oil and gas market is extremely fragmented. What they really need to be focused on, which is sort of your sweet sport, Jordan, is cash, is capital. Because so few companies have such a smaller piece of the pie, they have smaller pieces of the capital pie as well. And so when you're trying to increase production, the number one thing you need as an operator besides assets to drill is you need cash. You need capital to actually scale your operation. And there's no capital available right now in the UK. So this is not good. You know, Cash flows have been cut. The cost of capital has been raised. They talk a whole bunch about the changes in taxes that are going on, which is not going to help anybody. What is the EPL? It's energy profit levy. So in Europe, they have an energy profit levy, which is basically a tax. And they're increasing that tax rate. What do they increase it? 25%, I believe. Yeah, 25% on a surcharge on, it, on the quote unquote, and I love this, extraordinary profits the oil and gas sector is making. Yeah, and that's asinine, folks. Yes, right now we're making a lot of profits, but we went for a decade losing money. And we still kept the world supplied with energy. And the danger about this, Jordan, and regardless of what you believe your thoughts are on renewables and government subsidies, they're also doing the same type of taxing on their own renewable market, which is only commercially viable right now because the cost of hydrocarbons are so high. So what do they do? They're going to tax the hydrocarbon companies more, which is not going to help increase production. And then they're going to tax the renewable companies more with a windfall tax because finally they're making a profit, which is going to destroy the renewable business in Europe. This is not good. If you're in Europe, next winter is going to be extremely rough because a lot of these political decisions are being made right now. Well, and I was reading this article uh, prepping for the show, and you know they're talking about a 75% tax rate on this stuff for the energy commodities. And they've changed the tax rate on this stuff. I think it was, what, seven times since 2000? And I'm just going, 75%, guys, you're basically talking about something that was outlawed, at least in this country in the 1860s. Like, you just can't take 75% of somebody's input, their profit, and say, yeah, we'll have that much and you can have what's left. I mean, that's insane. Who's going to pay for that 75%? Well, that's all going to filter through the customer. I mean, obviously, and never mind the fact that you already have sky-high tax rates in Europe anyways, which is a whole other thing I could go off on a rant about. But good God, it's like they're California right now, 75%. I'm telling you, and what's going to happen, you're exactly right. The price is going to be passed on to consumer with the inflation that's going on, with the shortage of energy. This is why I'm saying next winter is going to be horrendous for Europe. There's no way to get around it. It's, it's going to happen. This winter, actually starting right now, is starting to get bad. You're already getting to the point where people can't afford their energy bills. Next winter is going to be horrific. Yeah, it's going to be brutal. All right. Next up on the chopping block here, we got, can a buyer's cartel challenge OPEC? Interesting idea. Did you read through this? I did. I did. And I think, in my opinion, the amount of organization and unity required for that to happen is so unlikely that I, in theory, yes, it could, maybe. I think the reality, the practical reality, not going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. OPEC can barely keep their stuff together enough to monkey with the prices the way they do. They've got enough problems. But on the free world side of things, on the non-OPEC side of things, we're just all over the place. I don't think we can get Euro. I mean, you're talking, not to go off on a rant here, but you're talking getting the US, the UK, Germany, France. I mean, just naming the big economies, right? And then you still got to factor in to really put a dent in OPEC. You got to have India on board and China on board. And what are the odds of that? When was the last time we agreed with China on anything regarding international trade? 
Yeah. And Jordan's 100% right. So what this article talks about, which in theory I think is awesome, is that if Europe and the United States and India and China can get together as buyers, we could then control the price of oil. If you've been around long enough to remember when Walmart was just starting, that's what Walmart did. That's what Sam Walton did. He figured out the money was in the distribution, so he got rid of the middlemen and had the manufacturers ship straight to Walmart. And then once he became big enough, he then dictated terms to the manufacturers, right? Like, if you want my business, you're going to have to have the right type of barcodes and the right type of technology and your systems need to talk to our systems and here's what we're going to pay you whether you like it or not. So that's what they're talking about doing here, which once again, like George said, would work in theory. There's no way in hell us, Europe, India, and China are going to agree on this. So it just won't ever happen. Yeah. In the crystal ball that I don't have, I don't see that future happening. Sounds wonderful in theory, but there's not enough Sam Waltons floating around the international energy sector to make that happen. Nope. And the other thing I thought was interesting here is they talked about the sanctions that the G7 and EU put together, and it's genius what they did. I would love to know who actually came up with it. So originally, they were talking about sanctioned all Russian hydrocarbons. And that, of course, would have, if it would have worked, if countries would have agreed to it, that would have pulled the Russian oil off the market, which then would have caused a price spike, which is not good for anybody because we're already paying too much for energy. And so what they did is they agreed upon a cap so that Russia could still sell their oil at a profit, which kept that Russian oil on the global markets, but not enough profit to fund their war machine in Ukraine. So I think the way that was handled was, was genius. Yeah, I'm going to say this. Let us not forget that our wildly divergent oil prices in the past couple of years kicked off because Vladimir Putin and MBL or MBS got into a slap fight over oil prices right before a global pandemic. Like with COVID and everything else that's happened, it's easy to forget that. But it's like we all remember those two getting into a little measuring contest over who was going to pull through this thing. And as usual, our boy Putin, he's making things happen. He's making the magic happen. So just constantly. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see if somewhere in the future somebody tries to put this together. But right now, 100%, there's no way this would happen. Great idea, though. Oh, yeah, 100%. All right, let's see what else we got here. We got Norway and Germany explore undersea hydrogen pipeline. I don't know if you read this in detail. I actually know a little bit about this. And let me tell you something I find hilarious, and I hope I don't mess up anybody's business plans. (laughs) So... Equinor, which is the former Statoil, and RWE, which is a big German energy company, are going to build an undersea hydrogen pipeline between the two countries. And they've already come to the agreement. Now they got to do the feed and everything else. What a lot of people don't know is they're selling this as a hydrogen pipeline, right, which is very good for ESG, for public relations, to talk about the green energy. But Jordan, you want to guess what the first thing they're going to flow in it? It's going to be gas, isn't it? Natural gas. Yeah. 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 Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> Someday it will be a hydrogen pipeline world and investors and PR, but first it's going to be a natural gas pipeline. I don't know. Oh, you mean that thing they're not getting into Europe a whole lot right now because there's a war on? What are the odds? A hundred percent. I just love the way they spun this. And if you've listened to me for any length of time, I am very bullish on hydrogen. In fact, I think electric cars won't ever be commercially viable for the world's population unless we get rid of the battery and use a fuel cell that will probably be powered by hydrogen. Right now, the growth rate of electric cars is slow here. And it's not because we don't want to buy them. It's not because they aren't cool. It's that they're only basically for wealthy people that have a garage. You have to have a place to charge the thing. And that's a garage and they're expensive. And that didn't even touch on the fact that our energy grid couldn't even conceivably handle that in the US right now. I mean, our energy grid was built in the 50s and it's received no significant updates to handle that kind of throughput. Right. Like I said, I love hydrogen, but I think this is a bit of a PR spin. You absolutely can strip hydrogen out of natural gas as other ways to make 
make hydrogen. You can actually electrolyze it from reduced water, which I think is very interesting. But hydrogen has less BTUs or less power than natural gas. So why would you do the work to separate a component of natural gas that has less power in it than the natural gas it has itself? From a basic physics point of view, unless you need that hydrogen for something specific, it just doesn't make sense to do this. And once again, I love hydrogen. There's always been a future. We've been using hydrogen commercially for 100 years. But I think this is a bit of a pro-climate, pro-ESG spin on basically a natural gas pipeline. Yeah, yeah. They were looking for some way to make this palatable to Europe. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is totally hydrogen eventually. Listen, I'm going to a conference in Vegas in a couple of months for my work, and I'm absolutely going for professional reasons. But also, it's in Vegas, so I need to be the one to go. But right. yeah, yeah, that's the equivalent. Now, I will say this much, because this is a brand new pipeline with brand new controls and safety factors in it, they're going to have almost zero emissions from this pipeline, which is actually good for everybody, even good for the environment. It also keeps the energy in the system, which Lord knows the world needs right now. Oh, yeah. All right. Moving on, we got a Coast Guard ends Gulf of Mexico search for bodies recovered. Yeah, a moment of silence for those that lost their lives. Yeah, so if you paid any attention, uh, we had a helicopter accident in the Gulf of Mexico. I guess it's right about three weeks ago. The accident on the surface basically kind of simple. You know, the helicopter dropped off some crew, came back for another crew. They went to make their landing. They missed the landing. The helicopter dumped into the Gulf, turned upside down and sank. And you would have thought they would have been able to find that helicopter and the reins of the people relatively quickly, but they didn't. It took them about two weeks to actually find him. I'm glad they did. Now, I think the U.S. Coast Guard and the FAA are doing their research on what they found to figure out if they can exactly what happened. So we don't have any of the details of what exactly happened. Unfortunately, these type of accidents happen. They've gotten much less in the last 20 years, but still, it's a damn shame that some people lost their lives. Jordan, we're going to take you and the rest of the team this spring to have a Hewitt training. Helicopter oh, training. Just in case you're ever in one of these helicopters and it crashes, you know how to get out safely. This will be my second round. You know, I'm pretty sure my original egress training from the Air Force has probably expired. So it's good. I need that. I forgot that you were in the Air Force. So when y'all did egress training, did y'all do it in the ocean or in a pool? We had a pool set up where I did it. Well, yeah, for the egress part of it, we had a pool set up. For the water survival, we actually got dumped out in the Gulf to muddle our way through it. So, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, the Marine Corps didn't believe in pools. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They dumped us in the freaking Pacific Ocean at night. Actually, I don't have nightmares about that. I Actually, the way the Marine Corps handled it, I thought was very good. It's uh, made sure the whole crew was safe, not just yourself. I tell you what, that does tug on every primeval survival instinct that you have. Oh, yeah. I always like to joke that the Marine Corps has a healthy contempt for its Marines when it comes to training. They're (laughs) always looking for ways to make it more unpleasant. Well, the funny thing is, and I'll probably get some listeners that says, hey, yeah, I remember that. No matter what happens, Jordan, you could be burned. You can have frostbite. You could be shot. It doesn't matter. They tell you to change your socks and take a Motrum. Like, no matter what happens to you. Yes, the Air Force is the same thing. The 100%. It was three things. Hydrate, Motrin, and PT. Yeah. Those will fix any. You have frostbite. That's fine. You have third stage cancer. Take a Motrin and PT and hydrate. (laughs) You lost a limb to an IUD. Motrin PT hydrate, STD, anything. That was the solution. Everybody at the Mayo Clinic is completely wrong. We have figured out medical science, and its name is Motrin PT and hydrate. That solves all your problems. I hope that's changed. I hope they've got a little bit better. I am sure it's not. (laughs) (laughs) What's up next? All right, next up, we got, uh, let's see here. 
Talos makes two commercial discoveries in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, so once again, showing how even a mature fields like the North Sea Gulf of Mexico using new technology and new processes, you can discover hydrocarbons that other people missed. So this is two very good finds. They're expected gross production to be around 15 to 20,000 barrel or equivalent per day, which is in mid-production numbers. They have a subsea tieback right there at the Ram Powell facility, which means they'll be able to tie into subsea pipeline and bring those hydrocarbons easily to market. Very responsible. 20 to 30 million barrels equivalent, about 40% oil, 60% liquids. Man, they're looking to be up in operations and have that well completed by the second half of 2023, which is pretty freaking fast. That's a little expeditious, yeah. They're not screwing around with that. Yeah, and what's really cool about this, this is a deep water well. And we talked earlier in the shows how the Gulf of Mexico and offshore drilling as a whole is coming back. But I really like to see these deep water projects come back because deep water is at the extreme end of the profitability and the doability, right? It's high pressure, high temperature, it's new technology, new processes, and it's what the world needs. And also, very selfishly, it's one of the cool parts of the industry to see what they have to do to be able to recover hydrocarbons in that much water. Yeah, I'm surprised they're moving that expeditiously given where prices are at currently. But I mean, I've heard a lot of bullish talk, so I guess they're just assuming this is, you know, and we all know oil and gas, it's cyclical, yada, yada, it's nothing new. But yeah, they're putting some money to get it up and running that fast. I'm surprised they're doubling down. I guess they're trying to get it all done now before the prices start to spike. That way they can turn that profit at its fullest yield. Yeah, so typically offshore, they know what their break-even prices. And that sometimes it's as low as $30 a barrel, depending on where you are offshore in the world. Really? Yeah. And then they know, or they have projections of what the markets could be. And then you have to remember, they hedge that volatility by signing long-term contracts. So even though the price may be 80 today and 60 tomorrow and 103 months from now, they'll sign a five or 10 or 15 year contract to sell it at $75 a barrel. Well, if their break even is 35 and they have a contract at 75 and it's long term passable revenue, yeah, the mathematical model just works, which is different than Shell, which is more like selling Toyotas. How efficiently can you create a well out in West Texas? Just like how efficiently can you build a Camry? And then how quickly can you get that car to market? And how quickly can that you Use car salesmen sell that car no matter how much it actually really costs them and get it off the lot, off the inventory. So the financial models are different, which by the way, folks, we have an oil gas finance podcast coming up after we launch Jordan. So stay tuned for more. If you're into the the capital and the money and the dollars, we have a ultimate geek podcast coming out for that. But anyway, I just think this is awesome that they've made two discoveries that are commercial. They're going to move forward with this. This is jobs. This is for people. This is prosperity for that area. And this is more hydrocarbons and energy for the world. So good job, Talos. Excellent. Excellent. Next one. And let me make sure I can get the right amount of disbelief in my voice as I read this, because this is shocking. As Sean Connery would say, positively shocking. Washington is having trouble refilling the SPR after a 220 million barrel draw. What? Can we all say duh at the same time? Like, (laughs) is anybody surprised about this? I don't know how deep you got to this article, but it's just one fact after another after another about how we're not going to be able to refill this damn thing, even if we want it to. And that's the other thing. Does our current administration have the desire and a wherewithal to actually hurry up and fill this Militarily important reserve 
back so we don't have to worry about something really bad happens in the world. Well, and all of it just to put a little temporary relief on the gas pumps when all you had to do was, you know, open up the taps in West Texas, the Bakken, some of those areas out there, and you could have gotten the same effect a month or two later. But now we're going to go into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because why? Eh, why not? We just got it lying around. Let's just use that. Oh, you mean we have to pay it back? What, like the federal debt? Unbelievable. That's a good analogy, George. That's a 100% good analogy. If you read this article and get to the details, just skip all the way to the bottom where the Wall Street Journal speculates the Department of Energy doesn't have enough funding to refill the SPR, even if they want it to. This is what we all knew was going to happen. This is not a surprise at all. It does, as a concerned American, especially around world security, it does bother me that our backups are this low. I mean, we need to fix this, but I don't think our current administration will, unfortunately. Yeah, I'd like to say... I hope for better, but I expected as much. So there we are. Moving right along, Russian Lukoil to sell strategic Italian refinery to the uh, Trifigura-backed company, if I pronounced that correctly. You did. You want to know the backstory really quickly about this? Yes, please. The Italian government was going to take control of it by law anyway. <laughs> oh, hey, that was a good time to sell it. <laughs> so, Perfect. Yeah, that's what's going on here. So basically, Luke Oil, which I think is the second largest oil company in Russia, has agreed to sell the refinery to a Geneva-based company. The deal will see Luke Oil and their subsidiary sell this refinery. The deal value hasn't been disclosed, and I guarantee you there's not a stock trade involved with this. I guarantee you it's all cash. <laughs> there's no way there's anything else in here. Now, the cool thing about this is that it's a strategic asset for Italy. This refinery can produce about one-fifth of Italy's need for refined products, which is actually pretty substantial. And it's also able, because it's physical location, export refined products to other parts of Europe, which like we've talked about for six months that Europe really needs. I'm glad this happened. The one thing that I am a little bit curious is, and nothing against the people in Russia. I love you. Don't currently like your current leader, but the people there are fantastic. I've enough had nothing but great relationships with people in Russia. But Russia has a different culture around maintenance, and not just with the oil and gas industry, around everything. So basically, in Russia, and please, I'm not throwing any shade your way, they won't fix something until it breaks. There's no culture plan maintenance. And so a lot of the refineries that uh, Russian oil and gas companies had were constantly having unplanned outages because they would wait for something to break, which would take part of the refinery down. They didn't go fix everything. And I know the Italians have the exact opposite culture, very much into predictive maintenance. When every T cross, every I dot it, they believe everything should be spotlessly clean. So I bet the culture of this refinery changes dramatically. You've never owned an Alfa Romeo, clearly. <laughs> no, I never have, actually. Because those cars will break down within 30 seconds of driving off the lot. Looks beautiful performs nicely. There is no predicting the maintenance because it's just perpetual. So I had an XJ6, I had a 1984 XJ6 Jaguar. It was the same thing. Now, I know Jaguar yes. didn't do this on purpose. Two weeks after factory warranty ran out, I lost the transmission. And then <laughs> everything that broke in that car cost $1,000. Headlights break $1,000. Windshield wipers break $1,000. The door won't open $1,000. Mandatory minimums. <laughs> And it was a beautiful automobile, but it was just yes. a money pit. And I'm not throwing shade on you, Jaguar. I know you've changed hands and you've gotten much better with your vehicles. But the one and we I want had, that Jaguar sponsorship. I mean, you know. Actually, I would love to have a Jaguar sponsorship. You know, one of the new shows that we've had requests for that I've yet to go find a sponsor for is basically a car culture podcast. A Ooh. lot of young people in the oil and gas industry have gotten back into cars. And a lot of the older senior people collect classic cars, especially muscle cars. And so we've had a request for years to have some type of car culture show. So Jaguar, if you're listening, 
Remember, our audience are people that work in the oil and gas industry, which means they're a high disposable income audience. If you'd like to sponsor car culture, podcast our network, let us know because we have a demand for it. We have a lot of people. I've been asking that for years. And we love Jaguar. <laughs> and actually, any other car manufacturer out there, we're game. That's right. What's next? Next up, we got Egypt makes 53 new oil and gas discoveries in 2022. That's a lot of oil and gas discoveries for a place that's the size of like Georgia, the state. Yeah. And you may not be old enough to remember this, but back in the early 90s, that area of the world was considered zero hydrocarbons. Like that part was considered, there's no profitable hydrocarbons to be found there. And it's amazing, once again, how much technology has changed that. And to your point, it seems like they make a new oil discovery every week. I know ExxonMobil's made a ton of discoveries out there, a bunch of joint ventures out there. And then what's cool about this is basically you're right next to OPEC, to the Arab oil and gas producers, right? I mean, literally physically right next to it. But your government is different, right? This is a little competition in a part of the world which could actually use some competition. Over How long until OPEC rolls up to their front door with a membership coupon? Yeah, 100%. So I think the way it would work is OPEC would try to force Egypt into OPEC, right? Egypt, from a military and economic point of view, has gotten to the point now where I don't think you could force them. They can stand on their own two feet. I was going to say, it doesn't help. I mean, you know, unlike Saudi Arabia, unlike several of those countries where everything literally is dependent upon the ability that you produce oil cheaply, and that's the entire economy is based around that. I mean, what are the two major states in that neighborhood that don't have oil-based economies? You know, maybe three if you, you know, toss in there, you know, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, the only joints in the neighborhood that you can't stick a straw on the ground and have crude come pouring out, right? So they've had to build an economy and a military and an industry that's not solely dependent upon that. And, oh, whoopsie, look, 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 look at that. We just found some reserves under here. Let's have a bit of that too. <laughs> yeah. But once again, this is good for Egypt. It's jobs, it's prosperity, and it's good for the world because we're in an energy deficit right now. So the more hydrocarbons we can find and get to the market, the better it is for everybody. Until OPEC decides to make OPEC plus plus. Uh, you know, we may have to get on your geopolitical show and talk about that. I'm not so sure what's going to happen with the relationship between Russia and OPEC. I think in some ways it's over with, but it's not the place, it's not the show to have that discussion. <laughs> I would actually love to come on your show one day and actually have that discussion. Done. Also, you're the boss, so you can do that whenever you want. <laughs> dude, dude, it's your show. It's, I'm, <laughs> I'm just the guy that has to put up with the vendors. <laughs> <I'm not really laughs> All right, that was good, Jordan. Speaking of good, if you want to advertise with us, we have a bunch of options. You want to check out pricing. We're very transparent. It's on our website. For everybody to read, just go to OGN.com, look for pricing. And then we have our Energy Annuity Conference coming in April. We're still looking for exhibitors for an exhibit spot. Let me tell you what you get. This is really cool. Number one, we have a podcast, Energy Continuity Conference podcast. So you get a free episode on the podcast if you're an exhibitor. You get a free speaking spot and you get to exhibit to a whole bunch of people that work in the oil and gas industry and all also, the wind and solar and geothermal and nuclear energy that are all worried about business continuity or disaster recovery. So if you have an interest in that, check out the link in the show notes. We would love to see you there. And then weekly rig count. Jordan, where are we? 
Yeah, so in the U.S., as of 6 January, we're at 772, which is a change of minus 7 from the prior count, which was a month before. Overall, year to year, you're talking about an increase of 184. In Canada, you're sitting at 189 currently, which is up 105. That's pretty impressive from a prior month. And year over year, that puts us back up plus 48. So even year over year, that's pretty considerable growth. Internationally speaking, we're sitting at an even 900 as of December 2020. Prior month, it was 890, so minus 10. And if we look at year growth, it's overall up 66. Good numbers, good solid numbers. This is what we like to see. Speaking of good solid numbers, we're over 50,000 members of our LinkedIn page. So if you want to join the party and be warned or notified ahead of time, depending (laughs) on what we're doing, that's one of the best groups to join. We're also over every other social platform out there, Jordan, including TikTok. Now, let me tell you something funny about our TikTok manager. She got her phone taken away from her for bad grades. So that tells you a little about the age that we hired. <laughs> I mean, TikTok account. Yeah. When her grades come back, we'll be back on TikTok. That's a funny. Wait, are you about to start giving me flack for being one of those dirty millennials? No. Should I? Okay. I mean, I am. So just watch it. <laughs> well, I'm a Gen Xer. So uh, you catch flack all the time. And then while you're online, sign up for our LinkedIn page. Go ahead and uh, go to the website, either oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. That's also where you can ask a question for a first Friday Q&A, which is coming up pretty soon. And then in the show notes, besides the link for our LinkedIn stuff and ask a question first Friday Q&A, there's also a link for our monthly oil and gas events newsletter. We take all the oil and gas events, put them in one spots, put it in your inbox once a month. We don't charge you anything. We never spam you. And every now and then there's something cool in there. Like we have a NAEP podcast pavilion. So first week of February for two days, we'll be at the NAEP conference here in Houston. And we're inviting every other oil and gas and energy podcaster in the world to come record with us. We're going to set up the gear. You show up, we do recordings. It's going to be like a slumber party for podcasters, except at a conference. And then if you like myself or Jordan or any of our other experts to come speak at your event, kick off your sales and marketing, customer appreciation, let us know a bunch of options. We can bring a podcast to your event. We can do a keynote, whatever makes you happy. We can probably work it in. And then I've already mentioned First Friday Q&A. I do want to stop for a second. Jordan, you were awesome. Thank you for filling in for Paige. Audience, make sure you stay tuned. We're launching it live from Nate, aren't we? Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. So we're going to have the recordings done. We're going to have it drop, I think, what, that first Monday or Tuesday, whatever day it is. So it's the 30th, 31st, somewhere around there, right at the beginning of NAEP. So that's the plan. And we're excited. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. And if you're coming to NAEP, come say hi to Jordan, myself, and all the other podcasters that will be there. You won't be able to miss us. And Jordan, I'm still negotiating. So I had this great idea. I don't want coffee in our booth. Okay. I'm an espresso machine with somebody to operate it. So I'm this close. I think I just about got the deal closed. We're going to be the only booth that has an espresso machine in all of Nape. First off, you know how much I drink in Nape. You that's know. how we met. Yes, that's how everybody that I know at OGGN and I met. And some of you guys know me more than I know you because of that. I think espresso is a good idea. I think we're going to need a lot of the extra hot caffeine to kind of get the mornings going after those evenings. Yeah, I'm also trying to put together just a podcasters-only cocktail reception Ooh. that Thursday night, but the odds of me getting it done in this short amount of time are slim because I'm late to the game and everybody else has picked up all the venues and, and everything else, but still working. But I'm pretty sure we're going to have an espresso machine. So if you're at NAEP and you want to come meet podcasters or you want a free espresso drink, come by and say hi. All right, Jordan, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,